There's just something about farms, isn't there? The fresh air with its heady bouquet of hay and manure. The rusty blades precariously balanced over the edge of every surface. The woodshed, which you must never enter. There's nothing in there anyway, just wood, stop asking about it. And yet, these faunal internment camps where living creatures are bred for the sole purpose of being processed into food have something indefinably sinister about them. No idea what. Episode 5, Spilt Milk. I open the front door to leave for the day, but a mistake has been made. Some careless fool has taken our house for another, and there on the front step next to the wrought iron shoehorn shaped like a frog is a bottle of milk. A silver top pint, fresh from the float, beads of condensation protruding from the glass like warts. Though it's down on the ground six feet away from me, I swear I can smell it. Sickly and sour. Cutting through the cold morning air like a gas attack, and my gut suffers an explosion of nausea. I slam the front door shut and bolt to the downstairs toilet. I cannot talk through retching, and my wife on the other side of the door calls. What's wrong? Am I sick? I look fine at breakfast. I run the tap full force and splash my face with cold water, baptising myself back to sanity. Outside, I'm just able to choke out. The front step. I hear her walk over and open the front door, poke her head out, unsure what she's looking for, then a little gasp as she realises. A scrape of glass as she picks the bottle up. More steps into the kitchen, followed by a sickening glug, 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 as the filth is poured away. My stomach cartwheels again. My wife knows that I have this phobic aversion, but not why, not fully. I've told her only scant details, and she lets it lie, knowing it's not her scab to pick at. We take our tea black, our toast with margarine. In the high street, we hurry past the cheesemongers, my mouth shut tight and my fingers clamped over my nostrils. It is the most minor of minor impositions, but today it leaves me a quivering amoeba of a man, in bed at a quarter past eight in the morning with a mug of hot water and ginger while his wife calls into the office for him. This is everything my wife knows. That I was born and raised on a dairy farm. That the Callow family had been dairy farmers since the first half of the 19th century. That there is no Callow farm anymore. That I hate milk. Back on the farm, I'm 13 and I don't hate milk. I drink it every morning before school. It's all glassful before slurping the dregs from my bowl of Weetabix. On weekends and holidays, when I lend a hand with the milking, I will often help myself to a taste of the raw milk straight from the manhole of the cooling tank, scooping it out in a chipped mug and gulping it down in three big swallows. Unpasteurised, it's ten times better, sweeter and thicker, almost like cream. If my mother sees me doing this, she'll clip me round the ear, telling me there's a reason we send it off to the creamery. One of these days I'll end up with TB or worse. And my dad will say, ah, it's fine. It's good for me. He did it all the time when he was my age, and back then it wasn't even fridged before the wagon came and got it. Back on the farm, I like milk just fine. What I don't like is cows. My father loves them, knows them all apart by sight without checking the numbers on their ear tags. 
Sometimes I'll kiss them right on the mouth, which makes even my eight-year-old sister say yuck, and she's mad for anything with four legs and hooves. When a cow gets poorly, my dad will be quiet and fretful from dawn to dusk. When one dies, he doesn't cry, not in front of us at least, but for a week or two he'll barely say a word. I, on the other hand, find nothing lovable about cows. In this regard, I take after my mother. As far as we're concerned, the cows are bavone non grata. It's not that we're scared of them, they're entirely placid, or that they're dirty and smelly. The smell of a farm is the smell of home, after all. The cows are just our livelihood, the machinery our factory runs on. Loving them would be like loving a threshing machine. They're not like dogs, where there's a personality, a sense of loyalty. They're not part of the family. Perhaps they feel they're a family with one another, if a cow can feel anything at all, and I wouldn't put money on it. When Mum agreed to marry Dad, her only condition was that she wasn't marrying into a job. She was a farmer's wife, not a farmer herself. Naturally, as his only begotten son, I'm exempt from any such agreements, but I don't mind too much. One day the farm will be mine, after all, to do with whatever I please. Having no attachment to the animals, I can happily sell the place off and make myself a tidy profit. I'm thirteen, and already I know that the prime motivation that will push me through life is money. At such a tender age, I'm not yet aware that greed is by and large considered an unattractive, if not evil, trait. To me, it isn't greed, I feel, but love, the same as my father feels for his herd. Money fascinates and excites me. I hoard it. Every pound, shilling and pence I can claim as my own, in a screw-top jar that once held gherkins, nestled safely under my bed in a newspaper-filled shoebox for extra protection. This is hard-won money. For as long as I've been able to carry a bucket, I've been working unpaid for my father, and when I'm ten, I go on strike until I'm compensated for my labour. Begrudgingly, he agrees to a wage of a shilling a day. The herd is my inheritance, my future fortune, my piebald pile of gold. You can imagine how I feel, then, when the disease breaks out. In October, before a word is uttered to me, I detect a certain air of doom around the farm. Dad is in one of his fretful moods, though as far as I'm aware the cows are all healthy. What's odd about this spell is that it seems to have also affected my mother. Where my father is subdued, she is irritable, snapping at my sister and I over the slightest provocation. One chilly Sunday afternoon, as I'm filling the chipped mug from the tank, she barks at me with a harshness I've never heard. Don't you dare! She yells, some thirty yards away, but as loud as a gunshot. Startled, I drop the mug onto the rim of the manhole. It clatters off the side, and the handle breaks away and falls to the floor. The mug lands in the milk and quickly sinks below the surface. I start spitting out some half-baked excuse. I wasn't going to, something equally as untrue, but she interrupts. No more, she says. Not ever. It's not until November that I even hear the words. Foot and mouth. Such a bewildering name. Two body parts I've never imagined meeting. Of course, my mother's hysteria over the raw milk was unfounded. Even if the milk were infected, humans barely get the disease, and the virus would have most likely fizzled away to nothingness in my stomach acid. But it is a less enlightened time, and all we know is that mere miles away, cows are dropping like flies. How it reaches our herd, I can't say, but it does. Over the course of three days, eight cows come down with fever and blisters. Immediately we separate the infected, quarantining them in the small barn, but by the morning of the fifth day, another six are showing fresh symptoms. 
The following week, a vet sent by the Ministry of Agriculture visits. He wears a plastic anti-contamination suit, thick goggles and a mask over his mouth and nose, the same kind the dentist wears when he prods about in your mouth. By this time, I understand the situation, but the consequences have not been explained to me. Neither of my parents have given voice to what they both know to be the worst, and most likely, result. Not in front of my sister and I, anyway. Knowing Dad's tight-lipped attitude towards most problems, it's unlikely they've discussed it in private, either. I've not considered for a second the possibility that we will lose the farm. But of course, there can be no farm without the cows. The entire herd is to be euthanised. There can be no hesitation, the vet insists. What the hell does he mean? Dad asks. It's only half of them. He's got more than a dozen out in the field without a mark on them and no temperature neither. The vet's afraid it's too late. From what he's been told, it's likely they weren't quarantined quickly enough. Even those without the disease will be carrying the virus. So lock them all up for a month or two and let them burn it off, Dad says. Shouts, actually, though there's no anger on his face, only fear. The vet's very sorry. There's nothing to be done. Resigned, Dad refuses the vet's offer to call in his colleagues and take care of it for us. They'll do it together, right now, the two of them. He passes me on the way into the shed for his bolt gun. He doesn't look at me. The voice that leaves his lips, though distinctly his, sounds like no voice I've ever heard. Inside, boy. It takes the knacker four separate trips to collect every carcass before the day is through. Long after the sun has gone down, the fields empty, the barns silent and still. As my sister and I do our homework at the kitchen table, we hear Dad enter the house, kick off his boots and walk up the stairs. Neither of us see him for four days. I'm not sad the cows are dead. I'm fuming is what I am. It was my future that went down the drain. Given the family's current finances, starting over with a new herd is out of the question. When my father finally emerges from his self-imposed prison of grief, the first thing he does is drive into town to make arrangements to put the farm up for sale. There is no attempt at breaking the news to my sister and I, gently or otherwise. It is assumed we will tacitly understand the situation. Of course, whether or not the farm is for sale, we're going nowhere soon. Who's going to buy a dairy farm slap-bang in the epicentre of plague country? All we can expect for the foreseeable is a purgatorial silence. A half-life scrambled together from the salvaged fragments of our former routines. Though I've never been academic, school becomes the best part of my day, my sanctuary from the stench of loss that now pollutes the farm. A handful of other farm boys have also started having run-ins with FNM, though none to the catastrophic extent that I have, and though we all share the same new sullen expression and bags under our eyes, it is implicitly agreed that we never refer to the troubles at home to keep the schoolhouse a place of refuge. In the mornings, the farm's silence is loudest. After an entire life being woken by the contralto calls of 30 cows, the absence of mooing feels like having your head plunged underwater. I'm torn between pain over the loss it represents and the satisfying knowledge that I will never have to listen to that fucking sound again. If there is a consoling element to our ruin, it is the newfound peace and quiet. Dad, at first, tries to keep working in any way he can. He visits the neighbouring farms, hoping to sell the silage we produced in summer and can now no longer use. The farmers, once our allies, greet him coldly and seem to want him off their property as soon as possible. They think he's carrying the virus, he realises. He bears the curse. <laughs>
Resigned to activities on the farmstead itself, Dad decides to restore every piece of machinery we have to like new condition. If he must sell his life away, he will get what it's worth. He starts with the milking equipment, flushing it clean and patching any joints on which the welding has begun to wear down. Before he left, the man from the Ministry of Agriculture told us that we would shortly be visited by a hazmat lorry, which would safely remove all the milk produced by the infected animals from the farm. A week after the day of the cull, and we've heard nothing. Every drop of milk the ailing creatures gave remains in the cooling tank, tainted and raw and likely curdling. It is the weekend, and Dad has me out of bed before dawn, just as he would have to milk the cows. Today, he tells me, we're going to empty the tank, transferring all the bad milk into churns, and clean the whole thing. I collect the empty churns from the storage barn, wheeling them one at a time on a little trolley, while Dad hooks up the drainage pipe to the tank outlet. There's always a slight lactic sweetness to the air in the tank room, but this morning it has undeniably begun to sour. Once the pipe is secure, its nozzle feeding into an empty churn, Dad loosens the valve at the outlet. That is, he attempts to loosen it. Despite his best efforts, it is stuck fast. You see that? That's what happens when the tank doesn't get aired out regular. I'll be having money back from the government if it's damaged, I tell you. He tells me to climb up and open the manhole while he twists the valve, in the hopes of equalising the pressure inside the tank. There's a plastic knob on the cover that you turn to let you swing it open. Normally it turns as smoothly as if it had just been oiled, but today my grip is unable to shift it even a millimetre. No good, I say. It's stuck. He tells me not to play silly buggers. He isn't in the mood. I tell him I'm serious, and he grumbles up off his knees and tries the knob himself. When it fails to loosen, he leaves the room for half a minute. When he returns, it's with a foot-long pipe wrench. He clamps the mouth over the outlet valve and pushes back. The valve resists and resists. Finally, the wrench gives, pushing back a few inches and producing a metallic grinding sound. Dad's eyes brighten until he realises the valve hasn't moved at all. The teeth of the wrench have just gouged into it. He swears. For an hour, I watch Dad struggle with the valve as the sun rises behind the clouds outside and the cold blue morning becomes a cold grey day. A few times I suggest leaving it for now and maybe getting a start giving the tractor a tune-up, which he ignores. When at last he declares defeat, he announces that we'll work on the tractor today instead. Oh, good idea, I tell him. That night, in bed, straddling the borderline of sleep and wakefulness, I note off in the distance an unmistakable sound the lowing of a lone cow. In my hypnagogic state, I am unperturbed, until the sudden remembrance of the last few weeks' events fills my veins with ice. I know the faint, almost subliminal sound of the neighbouring farm's cattle in the night, and I'm not hearing it now. Those noises came from our land. Bolting upright, I listen. After a moment's silence, I hear the response to the initial call. If you've never heard a herd of cows mooing in unison, stand in the middle of a circle of bass trombonists and instruct them to try and blow your hat off. You will feel the resulting explosion of sound deep in your bowels. Your bones will vibrate like tuning forks. The sound, though audibly originating from the barn, is somehow violently present and omnidirectional. It is as if cows surround my bedroom, their lips pressed against the walls, the door, the windows. 
beneath the demonic corral, I hear from the hallway my parents' door burst open, my father's clumping tread as he gallops to the landing and downstairs. But the very moment the back door of the house opens, the sound stops dead. A minute later, I am outside in my pyjamas and boots, next to Dad, shirtless and shivering. We are standing still and squinting our ears into the wintry night air. We hear nothing. What was that? I choke through a throat clamped tight with fear. Dad says nothing. We check the barn, empty, the field, empty too. Going insane we are, boy. Dad mutters, shaking his head as he goes back inside. Going mad. As if that weren't enough fuel for a sleepless night. The hours remaining till morning are scored by my parents shouting from the next room, the bovine sonic boom serving as the final straw on the latently overburdened back of their marital camel. When at last it sounds like things are cooling off, my door opens and in comes Mum. Do I want to come with her and my sister to stay at Nanny and Grandad's or will I stay here? There is a part of me that wants to leave the farm and its broken promises behind for fresh pastures, even if they are only in Telford. But an image flashes into my conscience of Dad, alone in this desiccated skeleton of his hereditary way of life, lying awake to the keening of the herd he was forced to kill. I find I cannot be the one to make it reality. I'll stay here, I tell Mum. She gives me a look like I'm mad. Then her face softens as she realises she is too tired to argue. She nods and says she'll ring once they've arrived. She closes my bedroom door and within seconds I'm finally asleep. It's gone noon when I wake. The house is silent and cold. When I step outside, I hear from the tank room the muted grunts and gasps of Dad struggling. Inside, I find him shirtless, though it's as chilly in here as outside. A thick coating of sweat paints his face, shining as though he's been lacquered. He's back at the valve with the wrench. A little pile of metal shavings is building up on the floor beneath. I ask if there's anything I can do to help. Without looking up, he tells me to be a good lad and make a cup of tea. When I return, with two steaming mugs, he's squatted on his haunches above the valve, pushing the wrench back with all his might. Veins in his neck and arms, which I've never seen before, are bulging. Abruptly, the wrench loses grip of the valve and flies halfway across the room, landing on the ground with a clang. As it does, Dad loses his balance. He falls, and his hand, still mid-push from the absent wrench, grinds along the concrete floor, leaving a smear of blood. Dad makes an unexpectedly high-pitched sound, like a trod-on cat. I rush to the house for bandages. When I get back, Dad, oblivious to his open wound, has refixed the wrench to the valve and is pushing again. I put a hand on his shoulder, tell him to let me dress the cut. Stop your bloody fussing, he yells. I almost had it. It'll be open in a minute. In the evening, I make sandwiches for tea with some cold sliced meat and cheese. The bread's a bit stale and hard to cut, so the slices end up much thicker at one end. I shout over to Dad from the back door when it's ready, but he either doesn't hear or doesn't bother coming in. I eat alone, then go to bed early. When I wake up, it is dark, the kind so deep your eyes can't adjust. I lay on my side. Stood next to the bed, looking down at me, I can just barely make out the shape of my father. There is the faintest glow from his eyes. He's very still. Dad, I mutter. He doesn't move. I reach out my hand towards him and it meets only air. The figure dissipates, a trick of the light or lack thereof. 
I stumble out of bed and blindly feel my way along the wall until my fingers find the light switch. The light stings my eyes as it illuminates my empty room. Through some curious effect of physics, the light in the room draws attention to the light outside. I become aware of a glow from the other side of my curtains. When I pull them aside, I see the tank room below, its door ajar and light spilling out. The barnet adjoins unlit and invisible next to it. You can't still be at it. The clock next to my bed reads a quarter to two. Did he knock himself out down there? I pick up my discarded socks from the floor and pull them on. When I step out of the house, I hear something. I stop in my tracks to listen. To my relief, it's not a cow. The sound is mechanical, rhythmic. It is deep and rumbles through the ground to my feet. There is a wetness to it. I gently push on the door of the tank room to find it, minus Dad, but alive with movement. The tank, it seems, is the source of the seismic noise. The whole thing is going like the clappers, vibrating, almost shaking off its legs. I check the control panel and find that the agitator, the motorised rod that mixes the milk to help it cool evenly, is switched off. The little red power light is dark. Whatever's happening in there was not intended by the manufacturer. The milky sourness of the air is overwhelming now, verging on putrid. It has mixed all day with Dad's sweat to create a smell that is disturbingly familiar for how unpleasant it is. It simultaneously induces nausea and a sort of comfortable somnolence. These are the smells of home, corrupted. There are dents in the sides of the tank and marks of red paint scratched off with the pipe wrench. The wrench itself lies abandoned on the floor, a smear of blood dried on the handle. The tank is vibrating so heavily the wrench has started to vibrate in sympathy and it buzzes against the concrete floor, sounding almost like the ringing of an alarm clock. I am immobile as I watch this trembling metal monstrosity. I know I ought to run back inside and get Dad, but I cannot turn away for fear of what will happen when I do. There is a sudden noise like a kettle whistling. Then the valve at last opens. With the pressure of a fire hose, milk shoots out of the tank, it hits the wall opposite hard and sprays back off in a mist. Curds of fat pile up at the foot of the wall, then are picked up by the liquid milk which runs down after it. Within seconds, the floor is coated, gallon after gallon of rancid, pus-like milk. Milk from diseased cows escapes its containment, souring all it touches. Then the flow weakens, and after a few seconds becomes nothing more than a drip. I'm sickened and soaked, but no harm has come of me. Holding my breath, I paddle on over to the tank and climb the steps so I can try the manhole. The knob, after a momentary stiffness, yields, and I twist it open. I peer down into the tank. About a foot and a half of milk, largely curdled, remains on the bottom. It is moving, shifting around like droplets of ink in a glass of water. Through its undulations, it is growing, accumulating more and more mass, Recognisable shapes split off from its amorphous form. A knee, an elbow, a foot. Through the manhole, I'm kicked in the face by a wet, white, casic leg. I stumble backwards, slipping on the mucose covering of the floor, and watch as the leg retreats back into the tank and is replaced by an arm, and another, then a head. What climbs from the tank is at once fluid and solid. Dripping translucent yellow whey, it resembles an uncured clay sculpture melting in rain, but it moves with a liquidious cephalopodic flow at a speed my eyes can scarcely register. 
Before my brain can react, it is upon me, its blank white face meeting mine, where with a push it transmutes back to liquid and trickles into my nostrils, opening my mouth involuntarily where it rushes in and my vision goes dark. I don't know how long I'm unconscious, but when I come to, milk-sodden and breathless, the man-shape is gone. I struggle to my feet and squelch my way outside, switching off the light in the tank room as I go. As I squint into the darkness, still disoriented, I look to my right and find the door to the main barn open. Whether it was like that when I came out here, I don't know. Right now, I don't care. I hurry back to the house, locking and bolting the door once I'm in. I strip down, leaving my wet clothes in the sink and run a scalding hot bath. I don't investigate the barn until the sun's up. Dad sits inside on the ground his back propped up against one of the stall doors. The entry wound on the side of his head is clean and small, no bigger than a penny. You'd have thought he was sleeping if he didn't have the bolt gun resting on his lap. 